Today we turn into on to chapters 12, uh, 14 through 16 of Matthew. And we're going to be learning from Jesus as he ministers and teaches in obscure places and situations throughout these chapters. And the theme we're looking at is, who is this King Jesus over these weeks? He's not your typical miracle worker or powerful ruler. He's shunning the admiration of the crowd. He's traveling among those outside of the nation of Israel. He's exercising power over disease and demonic forces and the medical, medical, metaphysical world over bread and fish and the weather. The disciples are, are starting to get it in these chapters. Statements of recognition are made by them. After, after calming the storm here in this Matthew 14, they will say, truly, you are the Son of God. Peter responds to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am in Matthew 16? And he'll say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Our section will close with Jesus informing his disciples of what it means that he is king. We'll read in Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's the destination of King Jesus on this earth. And he'll, he'll put following him in the proper perspective as the king of kings as he follows up saying, if anyone would come after me, I mean, that's what they've been doing. They've been following him, coming after him. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? This morning we're going to learn from the tragic story of a man who gained the whole world. That, that reached the pinnacle of, of his capacity in the area of Judea. <clears throat> this is Herod. And his response to gaining the whole world and what he did with it left him a weak, lustful, boastful, poor excuse for a leader and a husband and a father. And we're also going to see him, Herod, in contrast with the king of kings the ultimate servant leader. So many, many of you might know, I, I've been on like a six-year journey with Dallas Theological Seminary with this program that I kind of fell into of these, these cohorts of town and country pastors, small town, rural pastors, learning about leadership in the town and country setting. I, I'm... I'm actually working on a dissertation right now which, which focuses on leadership development in the town and country church. 
I love information on leadership. Not that that doesn't make me a good leader, just learning, you know, and, and loving, learning about it. But some of these quotes, they really grab me is, is like this. You know, a, a leader is basically a, has a person that has followers. A, a leader can lead someone into a good place or they can lead someone into a bad place. One quote I appreciate, if no one is following you, you're not a leader no matter how much you want to be in charge. In other words, leaders who don't listen will eventually be surrounded by people with nothing to say. Benjamin Hook said something that I thought was good too. If you think you're leading and you turn around and see no one following you, you're just taking a walk. This morning, like I mentioned, we are going to see a stark contrast between selfish leadership and servant leadership. We're drawn back to reflect on the last days of John the Baptist and the ungodly man that killed him and Jesus' response. So we're going to be looking at Matthew 14, verses 1 through 14, with some additional thoughts and observations. You know, this is what you'd call a narrative passage where it's just telling us what's happening. And what we like to do sometimes when we come across narrative passages is we kind of take two passes over it. First time we kind of go over and let's just observe what's happening here. And then the second time going through it, let's dig some principles out of it. But this, this time I want to give you some principles on leadership as we move through our verses here this morning. We read in verses 1 through 2, at that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So this is the, the setting of what's going on. Some point in the, in the future, if you will, to what the verses we're going to be looking at, Jesus is doing some amazing things and getting really popular, and Herod is saying, this has got to be John the Baptist. Why, why is Herod coming to that conclusion? And this is why. Selfish leaders care only about how they are affected. Mark 6 tells us that there was a lot of different theories about Jesus in Herod's court. Some were saying he's a prophet. Others were saying he's the, he's the, coming, the second coming of Elijah, which the Old Testament talked about. Others were saying he must be the resurrected John the Baptist. Why did Herod land on he must be John the Baptist? Because it affected him. Because he's the one that put John the Baptist to death. What does this mean to me if he is John the Baptist? John the Baptist never did one miracle. Jesus is doing all these miracles. There's no reason to think he's John the Baptist. Herod lands there because it's how it affects him. Herod's egocentric conclusion about Jesus had to do with the prophet he had interacted with, that he had interacted with. His paranoid conclusion reflects, reflects his guilt, his guilty conscience, and his sin over John's execution. You know, the Herodian family had been in a place, the, their place of power because the Romans put them over the Jews to rule Judea. Herod the Great, who is Herod, this is Herod Antipas. His father is Herod the Great. He's actually an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. And he 
has a child with a Samaritan, and that child is Herod Antipas, which is the Herod ruling at this time. They weren't Jewish, but the Romans thought they were Jewish enough to rule the Jews. So Herod Agrippa's, I'm sorry, Herod Antipas's father, Herod the Great, is the one who ruled when Jesus was born. He's only one of the Herods in the area. He's, it's, he's a tetrarch, so it means it's divided up among a number of them. And there happen to be three that the Romans put over uh, this region. Another one of them is Philip, his brother. We'll get to more on him in a little bit here. But this issue of who is this Jesus leads to a flashback on how John the Baptist ended up being murdered by the decree of Herod Antipas. So we, we get to uh, this flashback in verse 3. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. How's that work? Well, we'll explain. Because John had been saying, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, Herod wanted to put John to death, he feared the people because they held John, him, to be a prophet. So this is the setting of, of what is going on leading up to the death of John the Baptist. And John is in prison because of what he was proclaiming about Herod's marriage to Herodias. You see, Herod's wife Herodias had been the wife of his brother Philip. The two of them had an affair leading to them both to divorce their spouses and marrying each other. And this marriage was adulterous and forbidden according to God's commandments on many different levels. And John was costing Herod political clout with the Jewish people. And Herod was interested in silencing John, but he feared angering the Jewish people because of their respect for John as a prophet. And he also has kind of a fascination with John's preaching, and that's another reason why he didn't necessarily want to put him to death. But from these verses, I wanted you to take note of this truth. Selfish leaders submit to others only when they don't feel like leading. Otherwise, they're completely unsubmissive. We're told that Herodias loathed John and his preaching of righteousness. Mark 6 tells us that Herod's wife Herodias actually has a grudge against John the Baptist. So the picture is painted here of Herod taking away John's freedom, throwing him in jail in order to make his wife happy for the sake of his wife Herodias. We fast forward to this in this flashback to John's death at Herod's party. And I want you to see in this, selfish leaders take advantage of others and are vulnerable to the same. We read, when, when, but when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. This is his stepdaughter and niece, that's how screwy this situation is, who's about somewhere between 11 and 14 years old. 
pleased him so much, verse 7, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Selfish leaders take advantage of others and are vulnerable to being taken advantage of. Herod has an elaborate, lavish, sinful birthday party. I envision this being like a modern-day, disgusting bachelor party. As customary, the men actually would have eaten separately from the women. We can assume that there were likely other dancers that entertained the men. And Herod welcomes his niece, stepdaughter, to display herself like a piece of meat before animals. And he's the most excited of all of them. We read in Mark 6 that he's so morally compromised and swept up in this sick, sensual moment that he offers her half of his kingdom. And we read on in verse 9, and the king was sorry, you know, he gets taken advantage of here. She says, okay, anything I want, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. The sad fact pointed out here is that selfish leaders allow their world to spiral to the lowest levels. Herod's wife takes advantage of his compromised position and makes her move. She wants what she wants. John the Baptist's head up in grand victorious display. Mark 6 points out the immediacy of everyone's impulsive behavior where we read of um, his stepdaughter that she went out and said she went out and said to her mother for what should I ask and she said the head of John the Baptist and then it says and she came immediately with haste to the king saying I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter so in other words, they recognize just how compromised Herod is in this situation, and they got to act quickly. Herod's selfish leadership displays what C.S. Lewis depicts in Out of the Silent Planet, that a bent man is far worse than a broken man. A bent man is far worse than a broken man. So we're not contrasting Herod with John the Baptist this morning. No, God provides us with a pretty amazing contrast right here in these verses. Matthew teased the ball up for me here perfectly for us to contrast the selfish leadership of Herod with the servant leadership of Jesus. Jesus is... Herod here... Or, or, Jesus' whole life on this earth is a message of what we see is not that all that exists, all that glitters is not gold, and the best reward is not glittering here before us. 
He teaches his followers about how our lives can be invested in what's eternal, eternal life, eternal reward. And the following verses describe Jesus' reaction to the death of John the Baptist. Where we read in verse 13, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. This term withdrew means to to draw back to a refuge. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. You see, a servant leader surrenders his or her desires to God's will for the good of others. A servant leader surrenders his or her desires to God's will for the good of others. I don't know about you, but Jesus here smacks me in the face. While King Herod was in a palace of luxury, the king of kings wanders without a place to call home. And here we see Jesus hurting and wanting to be alone to grieve. Yet Jesus set aside his wholesome desires. There's nothing wrong with the desire to grieve. Yet he sets them aside when he saw what God the Father desired from him. The king of kings saw the need of the crowd, and he was moved to win compassion for them. He set aside his need for rest and met the needs of others. Let me give you a general leadership truth here. And this applies to men and women, okay? When I say leader, don't think I'm just talking about men here, okay? God gives women plenty of contexts to lead in. The person that cannot surrender to God's leadership over them can't lead others well. They can't be a servant leader. Look at the leadership of Jesus, the servant leadership of Jesus. He surrendered to the will of God the Father. Men and women are only able to minister to others in as much as they are following Christ. Some of the greatest insight into how the family relationships work and and the employer-employee relationships work in Ephesians 5 and 6 begin with this statement. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is why I say the person that cannot surrender to God's leadership over them cannot lead others well. You know, in this context, okay, so we know that Ephesians 5 talks quite a bit about husbands and wives. Okay, imagine like like a football huddle. Okay, ladies, just, just go with me here. Imagine like a football. Are you guys that aren't into football, all right? Are you guys that think football is football, you know, soccer? But anyways, I digress. Imagine a football huddle here, okay? Who's the quarterback? God is. He's calling the plays. The wife is the running back. 
The husband's the lead blocker. The quarterback says, running back, you're to follow the lead blocker. You're to follow him. God tells us how the roles of marriage are going to run. He gives us the plays. So Jesus stands in contrast to the Roman-appointed ruler over Judea, Herod. And while Herod lived as if he wasn't ruled by any moral law, Jesus lived submitted to God the Father's will. And we see from the contrast of Matthew 14 that if you want to be like Christ, set aside your cravings, not God's commands. Set aside your cravings, not God's commands. Herod's household degenerated by valuing the satisfaction of selfish desires over obeying God's commands. But Jesus shows us how God's will should trump our desires. Let's admit one thing. Herod had no interest in obeying God. None whatsoever. He was trained under his evil father, Herod the Great. His dad is the ruler who killed all the babies in Bethlehem. Trying to get at Jesus. To keep his power. Still, John the Baptist's message was to this Herod, it doesn't matter if you care or not, God still holds you accountable to his commands. Jesus, the king who holds the authority of life and death in his hands, he doesn't bring death, he brings abundant life. As the theme is for our men's breakfast series, John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Selfish leader Herod abandoned his role as head and protector of his wife. Instead, he lived by the happy wife, happy life mentality. And that fo- I'm just going to tell you, that philosophy quickly uh, spirals down into if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. I'm going to say a little bit more on that in closing today. Herod silenced the voice of conviction in the life of his family by having John the Baptist arrested and finally killed. They traveled further down the rabbit hole of sin and debauchery, leading only to bondage and impulsive sin. And this is on Herod. Servant leader Jesus brings life by allowing us to lean into a relationship with God, standing in his righteousness because of his sacrifice. We don't have to hide our frailties or shut out God's convicting voice because Jesus provides what we truly need and long for, forgiveness and acceptance based on his sacrifice. You know, my philosophy of leadership talks a lot about values. 
if you know your values, 90% of your decisions are made. And if you think about working out values, it, it, you got to think of a scale, all right? Because values de 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 define what is important to you. But you only know how, how heavy something is to you if you put something else on the other side of the scale. Simple truth is this. You might say in our home we believe that obeying God is important. Let me ask you this. In your home, what is more important than obeying God? That's when you find out how important it is that you obey God. How much do you value obeying God over obeying your desires or your cravings? How would your family members answer this for you? We also see from the contrast of Matthew 14, if you want to be like Christ, keep your heart tender, not tainted. Keep your heart tender like Jesus did, not tainted like Herod. Herod submitted to his desires, misused his stepdaughter, and was misused by her, but Jesus submitted his hurt to the Father's will and served others. Herod's stepdaughter, like I said, was, was somewhere between 11 and 14 years old. Her encouraged behavior and Herod's response only hint at the severity of his tainted heart. He wasn't protecting her as he should have been. He wasn't in his right mind. He was drunk. He was consumed with lust, moving beyond even conventional pagan immorality. He was tainted with sensuality. His judgment was weakened to the point of the ridiculous. On the other hand, servant leader Jesus, as, as sad and grieved as he was was still tender to the needs of others, still tendered to the will of God. He was still sensitive to the direction of the Holy Spirit. Even as the God-man, he had submitted himself to the will of God the Father. We read in John 5, verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Philippians 2 explains what was going on there. It explains how Jesus, even though he was in the very form of God, surrendered himself and humbled himself and became obedient to God the Father. That's what was going on during Jesus' time on this earth. You know, I, I think I've shared this story like s several years ago. On, on one of the opportunities I had to be on a missions trip to Mexico City with my youth pastor growing up, he shared with me and he was like, he was like man, the ladies just offered me this amazing uh, piece of beef. They, 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 they cooked it up and they gave it to me. This is my youth pastor talking. And he says, I, I was able to just take the side of my fork and cut down the side of it. It just peeled off so perfectly. It was so tender. And, and, and he says, he's sitting there going, oh, this is delicious. He says, 
he asks them, how did you get this so tender? They're like, oh, it's, it's really simple. You see, we, we get it out, we take it out, we set it on the counter, and we leave it there for about three days. It wasn't easily cut with a fork because it was a, an excellent tenderloin cut. It was a cheap cut of meat that had been allowed to spoil. The steak wasn't tender. The steak was rotting. Being agreeable and easygoing is not always the loving thing to do. Being compliant when the issue is wrong is not a loving way to lead. It's not tenderness. It's giving in to moral rot. What's Christ-like is to be tender to God's conviction and to stand on it lovingly. Lastly, we see from the contrast in Matthew 14, if you want to be like Christ, be concerned with saving others, not saving face. Herod followed through with an unthinkable murder at the expense of others, but Jesus died an unthinkable death to save others. What a contrast. The selfish leader Herod refused to stop the madness of the moment for fear of losing face before his guests. We're told that there because of his oath and his guests. Servant leader Jesus, instead of using his authority to, show, to shoo the crowds away, he acted out of compassion for them and ministered to them. One day when his disciples were arguing over which one of them were Jesus' right-hand man, he told them, as many of you are familiar with this in Matthew 20, he says to them, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, what I don't like about social media is that our friends or followers there don't really know us. They just know what we want them to know about us. This is why I like to call Facebook, I like to call Facebook fake book or face brag. Do you recognize this scenario? There's a big argument going on in your kitchen. I think of the kitchen because, you know, that's where the phone used to be, right? There's this big argument going on in the kitchen. And you're like, everybody shut up. Pick up the phone. Hello. Hello. 
Is that normal in your home? We can justify this sort of thing by saying, you know, my kids know that I love them. It's just that they drive me nuts sometimes. My neighbors still think I'm perfect, though, at least the ones that aren't in earshot. Teens, we might say, my parents know that I love them. I just hate them right now. My friends are my lifeline. They make me feel normal in this world. So the only time my parents see the nice side of me is if my friends are around. Folks, be concerned with saving others, not saving face. I love this other quote. It's hard to lead a cavalry charge if you're afraid of looking funny on a horse. It's also hard to live a gospel life if you can't admit that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness. If you can't be real about the challenges of your home, if you can't be real about your own sin and your own battles with the flesh. I want to wrap up this message by bringing some things home for us. I'm going to say some very unpolitically correct things. Or politically incorrect things, I guess. What are some ways that I think that you can respond to what we've learned here today? To what I've been learning during this week? Dump the world's solutions. Dump them. They only teach us how to get what we think we want out of a sinful situation. Herod is an example of a selfish husband trying to keep the peace. Like I said, Ephesians 5 teaches us that Jesus is the example of how a husband should love his wife. Married folks, we need to work by God's recipe, not the world's compromise. Reject the philosophy of happy wife, happy life. And, and I'm, if you've said that to me at any given time, I'm not trying to target you with this. We all tend to think this way. Whatever will make you happy. This is basically a modern celebration of how sin harmed marriage. Okay, We're told in Genesis 3.16 how sin harmed marriage. And it sounds like this. When God said to Eve, your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he will rule over you. Both of those responses to how... But those are how sin affected both the wife and the husband in harmful ways. Your desire will be contrary to your husband and he will rule over you. This is essentially what Dr. Egrix calls in uh, Love and Respect the marriage crazy cycle. Wives disrespectfully clinging to control and husbands ignoring their wives' needs with dominance. The solution to the crazy cycle of disrespect and neglect is the mutual surrender to Christ of love and respect. That is, I believe, specifically why 
We are taught about that in Ephesians 5 to fix Genesis 3.16. Dump the world's solutions. They only teach us how to get what we think we want out of a sinful situation. Husbands, being responsible for the direction of our homes should not mean being dismissive or insensitive. We don't see Jesus here saying, you guys will be fine. What now? Don't your needs ever stop? How do you manage? We don't see Jesus responding that way. Young men, prepare for the future by surrendering to Jesus now. You have got more responsibility coming your way than you can ever be ready for in your own strength and your own wisdom. Prepare for the future by surrendering to Jesus now. Now, just because these are targeting a particular group doesn't mean they're not true for all of us. It's only by being surrendered to God's ways of life that you will be able to handle future responsibility well. One of today's influencers of many young men, his name's Andrew Tate, that many young men are listening to, He's got the whole world at his fingertips. He got it by some very, very immoral means. He is a selfish, selfish leader. One of his statements that I read says this, I have everything every man has dreamed of. I got a big mansion. I got supercars. I can live anywhere I want. I got unlimited women. I go where I want. I do anything I want all the time. So, I'm an amazing role model, end quote. This is what God says to him from 1 Corinthians. Even if you could do it all and have it all, if you don't have love, it's all worthless and meaningless. Young men, do not listen to Selfish, I almost said something meaner. Selfish people like Andrew Tate. The guy's got nothing because he does not have love and doesn't have the capacity for it. Young ladies, I know this isn't politically correct. Choose wisely who your life will follow. If you don't want to follow a man, don't get married. But choose wisely who your life will follow. Run from the man that simply lets you do as you please. Wait for the man that will set aside his needs to meet the needs of others. Following God's leading. Get a good look in the story of Herod here at the devastation of a sin, that the sinful leader will cause to a home. When you're choosing the boy to hang out with, you're choosing who you'll grow fond of. When you're choosing who you'll grow fond of, you're choosing the kind of person that you will marry. 
When you're choosing the kind of person that you'll marry, you're choosing who you'll follow. When you're choosing who you'll follow, you're choosing where your life is going to end up. Parents and grandparents, radiate God's love for God's truth to stick. Radiate God's love in order for God's truth to stick. Our kids and grandkids need to learn to live life through the gospel. They need to know we don't get it right. And here's what we do when we don't. We admit it. We confess it. We stand in God's grace. We grow. But without love, our kids and grandkids might get what we've got but they won't want what they get. Without love, they might get what we've got, but they won't want what they get. Let's bow our heads. Jesus, thank you again so much for being just what we needed you to be. To be able to provide us with salvation, and to be able to provide us with the example that we need. And Lord, this provides us with a path over and over and over again to learn from you, to be changed by you, to surrender to you, to experience your forgiveness. Lord, do not let these words that I've shared make anyone feel like they are stuck where they are. You change families and family trees. And you change it by our following you. Lord, allow us to live surrendered to you and a servant to others. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name.